Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. Hi listeners, this is Colin Larson. Over the past couple of years in particular, we at ACT-IAC have talked a lot about equity and accessibility in government, especially on this podcast. I know that these can sound a bit like buzzwords, but they're not. Our government has a responsibility to provide effective, equal service to all Americans, regardless of race, economic status, gender, or any other characteristic that may be unjustly used to discriminate against our fellow humans. It is a simple fact that the United States has not historically lived up to this mandate, and the effects of these failures are still with us in our communities to this day. It's important to remember that the foundation of all the discussions we have is the United States citizen, a person, one whose life can be irrevocably changed by the way we enact policy, for good or ill. In 2021, the Biden administration passed a series of executive orders directing a coordinated federal effort to study and measure the effects of government programs. This is a tough job. For real change to occur, our government agencies must take a critical eye towards its processes and services to accurately determine the real impact that they have or don't have on both the recipients of these programs and the employees who operate them. Today on The Buzz, we're talking with two experts who have done some of this important work. Today, I'm joined by Simka Suveki-Bogan, the Chief Customer Experience Officer at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and Nora Johnson, the former Wildland Firefighter Equity Project Lead at the U.S. Forest Service from Booz Allen Hamilton. Welcome, Simka and Nora. Thank you, Colin. Nice to be here. Thank you, Colin. Simka, uh, let's start with you. Can you talk a little bit about how the executive orders around access and equity uh, are driving discussions within the U.S. Department of Agriculture as a whole? Absolutely. I think it's um, the executive order to us is just a really, really great opportunity to really relook at some of our approaches and our capabilities as a department. Um, you know, with this executive order, I think one of the most exciting parts of it is how it's really focused on a human-centered approach to tackling problems and, and, you know, uh, in, in the government space, and I'm sure in the private sector space, there's a lot of issues where, you know, maybe we need to come up with a new solution for a problem, whether it's a build a new website, build a new app, build a new uh, capability for our customers uh, to do work with us. Um, and with that, you know, sometimes comes a lot of ownership with just very specific offices or very specific projects. And really, I think what this executive order is uniquely doing is taking different capabilities like IT, data, uh, social science, uh, user experience, and all of those kinds of things and trying to uh, make that work together in much more in concert to come up with a much more human uh, focused product, human focused solution. Um, and so I think the very strategic emphasis on these methodologies and these types of uh, skills and bringing those to the table is really, I think, what makes this executive order very unique. So when we're talking about um, a historical lack of equitable access, what sorts of programs or initiatives have seen this 
this issue in the past? I think there's there's just decades of um, of, of barriers um, for a lot of services in government, and I think that's a lot of the uh, rationale behind even the equity executive order, you know, that also came out uh, last year. So all agencies across government, including USDA, is working to uh, make the proper assessments, you know, equity assessments where we need to you know, really uh, think uh, in a very collaborative way, in a new way about how we'll approach some of those and tackle some of those uh, issues. Um, I know Nora will probably talk a little bit about, you know, the Forest Service and and how they're, you know, uh, looking at some of their programs and their offerings. Uh, We have uh, 20 different agencies that are all going through this exercise today. Um, uh, on a day-to-day basis, really um, evaluating, you know, what data do we collect? You know, are we, uh, uh, do we have gaps, you know, and some of the uh, folks that we uh, design the service for, but maybe they're really not using it. You know, are there parts of the country even that we don't see any activity with our services today? Maybe there's a one part of the country that doesn't, you know, optimize uh, farm loans, or it doesn't opt, it doesn't have any firefighters, you know, in that location. Um, so I think we're really taking a, a new look on how we look at our data, how we're looking at, you know, what we know about our customers. Again, who is using it and who is maybe not using uh, some of the service that is really uh, designed for them. Yeah, as, as you say, equity really goes hand in hand with the broader discussion on customer experience because this is it's about accessing government service. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for the USDA in particular, you know, what are the stakes when these programs don't, when they're not accessible to, to everyone? What, what are the potential consequences of that? I think we're very uh, fortunate to be a, a department where we we deliver such critical services, um, food assistance uh, through things like SNAP and WIC, food safety, we do, uh, you know, fire suppression, you know, just really some of these being very critical to not just our livelihood, but um, our, our lives, you know, and we really um, want to make sure that these uh, offerings are delivered in the best way possible. So really taking that human-centered lens, really using techniques like design thinking and social science and different ways of looking at our data um, is really a, a critical um, a critical piece to, to really kind of solving some of these really long-standing issues. Uh, so uh, something we're going to be talking about today is uh, not just the customer experience, but the workforce experience, which is you know, our federal employees or any government employees are also a recipient of government service. And it's important to talk about uh, how they're served or not served by the government. So what challenges has the USDA's workforce confronted when it comes to inclusivity? And more broadly, why is that important? Um, So with USDA and the workforce, I think it was really, especially in a time of of COVID over these past couple of years. Um, We really saw a need uh, with 
with um, a, an agency as large and as spread out as USDA. I mean, we have employees not just in the United States across every you know single state, but also across uh, international and abroad. Um, and so it was really uh, critical in a time where there's a lot of unknowns, where there's people um, going through so many different issues, especially during COVID, to really get a deeper understanding of what people were going through, um, what they were anticipating, you know, what their needs are, whether it be in the IT space, whether it be wellness space. And we designed this with, uh, we used a human-centered approach um, with all of our different agencies. And we have about 20 plus agencies uh, we have also a good number of staff offices that support across the department as well. Um, and we really talked to each of them to really design something that could speak to their unique employee base, um, but could also lend itself to giving us a good picture of where the department was as a whole, what employees are thinking, where they are, you know, kind of um, mentally with their needs, uh, their opinions about remote work, telework, um, opportunities that USDA was still uh, in the beginning um, several months back thinking through, you know, in terms of, you know, do we relook at how we've written our policy? Um, do we look at um, different opportunities? What are the needs in the IT space? Do we need more tools uh, available to folks? Do we need more things available in the wellness space when it comes to some of the HR uh, capabilities? So, uh, we really designed it in a way that not just, you know, checked off, do you like this, do you not like this, you know, kind of scale, um, but we really leveraged our text analytics capability and understanding what people are actually saying in their written comments. And, and because our workforce was so large and because uh, we have a, about 100,000 workforce strong with about a 52% response rate, which was tremendous. So. Uh, even with that alone, we had over 360,000 comments uh, provided back to us, which was a wealth of information to just be able to analyze, take back to different parts of the organization um, so they can make sense of it as they, you know, refine policy and think through different opportunities uh, in their different uh, operational components. Um, and so really, with all of that richness, we were able to make sense of a lot of the information here, really, you know, heartfelt stories of what individuals were going through, uh, hear about, you know, some nuance and assumptions that people have or perspectives that people had, you know, what if my supervisor, for example, changes tomorrow, you know, and I have another supervisor who loves telework and then one who doesn't like telework, you know, what happens then? So we were able to kind of you uncover some of those big questions, um, see trends, um, and this really helped us as a department make some uh, choices about what direction we were going to go, what policies we needed to establish, and, th and so on and so forth. Yeah, so you, you've talked a lot about you know, changing, evolving the way that you collect data, the way that you process data. Can you talk a little bit about uh, both on the program and and the workforce, the relationship between quantitative and qualitative data in, in how you're measuring um, outcomes? Sure thing. And I'm sure Nora can elaborate on this a lot more. Um, she is the expert in that space for sure. Um I know one thing that we're always actively doing, especially in the space of customer experience, is really elevating the importance of qualitative information. 
right? And I think it's very easy to uh, quantify quantitative data, if you will, just because there's numbers available, you know, we can actively count something and, and we have it kind of sometimes automated and sometimes just very easily accessible. When it comes to qualitative, I think it's a mix of uh, the right skill sets you have in place um, and how you kind of use that uh, uh, qualitative data as actual hard data and how you marry it together. I know we're always on the hunt for opportunities to marry both. Uh, we don't want to just look at the output of loans or the output of grants or how many things did we do today, um, but also, you know, what are people saying about the things that we're doing? How do people feel about the things that we're doing? Um, and how can we really use that in concert with how we look at ourselves and how we look at our performance? Nora, do you have anything to add about the qualitative piece? I know we did a lot of work there. Yeah. So uh, from where I sit in more of a field operations standpoint, qualitative and quantitative data are convolved. Um, you, you should not have one without the other if possible. I, I know in many cases it is not possible. And so you're working to get a baseline, but in, we've had the absolute pleasure to work with a lot of um, agency level chief data officers and acquire a lot of the data that we need or push for more. But it's, it's the ability to springboard off of one another and get a really rich data set. So, you know, starting with a massive amount of quant, quantitative data and then using it to dive deep to find areas that are um, rich with opportunity or challenge. And then you go explore those areas, you gather the qualitative data, and then you uh, synthesize all of that to say, okay, what should we focus on within this qualitative? What are the themes that it's telling us? And you can use that to go find supporting quantitative data. And so it's just this constant recursive um, storytelling and finding exercise between the two of them where you can completely enrich whatever you're working on so that at the end everything that you've done is supported by you know substantive rigor it's not just a shot in the dark it's this is what the data and the research told us um, either via your words and hundreds of stories or via hundreds of thousands of data points large quantities of data can sometimes feel both intimidating and somewhat mathematical but it's important to recognize that it tells a story, and the story that it tells is one of human experience. So now let's dig into the Wildland Firefighter project a bit more. Tell me what this project is about. You know, what, what is the job like for these firefighters on the front lines? So to do that, I hope you don't mind, I'll begin at the beginning with what the Wildland Fire um, program is like at the Forest Service. So it's not a single deployable unit. It's not the way that many people imagine uh, firefighting, you know, where you see the guys and gals in a rig and they jump out to a fire. It's a living and breathing entity. It's in view, infused into so many aspects of the Forest Service. You have wildland firefighters that are permanently on staff all year round. You have those that are temporarily hired for the fire season, and many of them come back year over year. You have those that hold red cards, so they have a day job, and they can be called upon to perform fire-related services. Um, and then thousands of other associated personnel that work in fire science, hell attack, which is tactical air operations, management, mission support. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It feels like everyone we talk to at the Forest Service had some relationship with fire and could point to where they helped. 
And to address this, the Forest Service works with its other federal, tribal, uh, state, and local partners, and they've developed a national cohesive wildland fire management strategy. And so it's not just the Forest Service doing this separately from the Bureau of Land Management, separately from tribal operations. I mean, when you get on the ground with these teams, there's no distinction. They all work together in concert to um, provide re resilient landscapes, fire adapted communities, and safe and effective wildfire response. Um, and then within that, it's also worth mentioning that the Forest Service is unique in that they divide up their ground operations by the physical land. So ranger districts, national forests, and then regions are how the workforce is organized. Um, so the experience of a wildland firefighter is wildly different in Region 5, which is California, versus Region 9, which is where I am in Vermont. So just like no two humans are the same in any study, no two regions or forests are the same. And that's really underscored in our research that each person's um, experience, opinions, anecdotes, and then reflected data points are all colored by the experience that they have um, within their region and within their local squad. So within this equity initiative, we focus specifically on permanent and temporary wildland firefighters. So I just gave you a lot of people that work in fire and we focused on those two specifically. And those would be the more traditional wildland firefighters that you think of on the fire land, or sorry, on the fire line performing operations. Because I'm not on the fire line, there's no way for me to accurately relay their experience to you. I, I can't do it justice. It is a really unique experience, but these people begin their fire season early summer, oftentimes in May, and if you're in a high risk area like Colorado or California or the Great Lakes, their rig rolls the entire summer. It can keep going through November or December. They sleep when and where they can. They're constantly fighting back the fires, assessing new dangers, predicting out next steps and balancing all of these things with thoughts of when and how they get to go home and rest for a few days. And then add on top of that, the fact that they need to um, reapply for jobs or apply for a change of position six months in advance. So they're fighting these fires out on the fire lines, sleeping in a truck, on a phone, applying for a new job. It's um, it's a lot to manage at once and sitting in my office at home, it's difficult to imagine, which is why we went out and spoke to many of them. And the, that difficulty is what we focused on. How do you access USDA resources that you need or even try to apply for a job change when you're on when you're out on your rig rolling, when you're on the fire line, what does that experience look like for you? And due to this and many other nuanced factors, we've seen up to a 35% gap in target numbers to staff um, the wildland firefighter workforce and the actual number hired. If these rigs aren't staffed, they can't go out and fight fire. And that adds additional strain and danger to those who rely on them. So that's really what we were looking at is bridging those gaps, finding out where the losses in communication and efficacy are and making sure that they have the experience they deserve. Now, as you point out, this is an extremely difficult job and one that in many portions of the United States will likely only become more difficult as um, the incidence of extreme wildfires increases in the coming uh, years and decades. So uh, my question is, how, how do you address these gaps? How do you improve uh, the hiring rate to make sure that these rigs are staffed? How do you improve the experience of firefighters to ensure that they're continually able to do this very important work? Sure. So first and foremost, you um, do your homework. You go out and read letters that they have sent to Congress. The Wildland Fire Workforce is vocal and proud 
We love that about them. And so many of them want to talk to us. We found no resistance in finding people to talk to and seeing what they've written and um, listening to podcasts just like this, where they have spoken about what's what's going on for them. And so um, first it was up to us to go out and listen to them and read their materials and make sure that we could come in from a point of empathy and understanding. Um, and then the next step was to see what the Forest Service was already doing. Every single time we brought up what we wanted to do, the Forest Service pointed to a new person who was already working on it. Um, I always maintain that everyone I've ever interacted with at the USDA is doing the best they can with what they have. And our job is making sure that they either can do more or that they have more so that that job can get done um, more efficiently and more effectively. So. Once we mapped out what the firefighters are already talking about and what the Forest Service is already doing, which is almost everything, our job was to go out and talk to people in the field and get a sense of what their experience is currently with the frame of reference of accessing these resources and then keeping in mind what's already going on. And so we spoke with um, like I said, wildland firefighters, um, support personnel, supervisors, leadership, and then people up in headquarters. And what we found is that the vast majority of these challenges stem from either a lack of transparency, a lack of communication, um, no way to get the service to them effectively, um, or just you know no understanding of what's coming down the pipeline because who told them? Um, wildland firefighters are, I know I've used the word unique a lot, but they are, <laughs> they're so unique. They are out in the field performing this very dangerous and rigorous job, and then oftentimes we lose touch with them at the end of the year. And so it's, do I send them an email on an update when they're out on the fire line? And once they're gone, you know, how do I reach them? What's, what's the best way to do that for them? And so a lot of what we did was figuring out ways to connect between what's already going on in the Forest Service, what's already being created for them and by them, and then making sure that A, their voice is heard and elevated and their needs become a priority. And then B, they know about it. You know, how, how can things get any better if they have no idea what's going on? You know, Forest Service is doing so much, you know, and they're doing fantastic work. And like she said, every time we looked at, you know, uh, whether there was uh, this activity happening or something similar to that, the answer was usually yes. Um, so our biggest job was to kind of look for opportunities to make further connections, look for opportunities to communicate it further. Um, and, and to her point, it was really more about, you know, where are there opportunities to communicate all of these services and, and, um, and benefits, you know, that were available um, to, to the firefighter workforce. Well, and if I can jump in again, um... Something that we struggle with that I've noticed in federal government is in order to protect the American public, um, protect our futures and protect ourselves is we make everything so complex. <laughs> it's, it's difficult to slog through what all goes into it. I mean, that person I was talking about who fills the application on their phone, uh, they don't have access to Word documents. So they make their resume in a resume builder on USA Jobs intended for people applying for jobs for the first time or interns. Um, but that's the best way for them to get their resume in. And they click the button and hope it goes through. And then two months go by and their application gets denied because they misclicked a button while they were filling it out at three in the morning on a fire line. But then on the back end, what's happening is that 
Um, human resources personnel have to dance between more than four different systems to process 8,000 plus applications at a time. And, um, you know, those those people who are supplying the applications are more focused on fire than wordsmithing, which makes sense. Um, but as you go up the chain, the number of people involved in this single point increases exponentially. It's, it's staggering. Like I said, everyone has a hand in fire at Forest Service and everyone has a part to play when it comes to this hiring. You know, they have these massive conference level meetings to talk about who to hire and where and human capital is um, the talk of the town at Forest Service. They care very deeply about um, the people who work for them and the skills they bring to bear. And the unfortunate thing is that a lot of people want to make an app, right? You know, we talk about this and they see the gap. And could you imagine that person that I just described out in the field and we tossed them a government application? So what we wanted to do and really stressed with this one was talk to everybody, get our hands on every single piece of the puzzle and figure out where the gaps are. Because what we found is that they have this robust set of um, capabilities in training, in mental health resources, in after action. They have a whole office dedicated to learning about incidents and then reflecting them back to their workforce and saying, this is what happened. We heard you. We're, we're taking ownership of this so that we can learn from it. And I think that's so commendable. Um, and this is a huge part of equity and inclusion. And that's something we want to underscore um, both for our partners and for all of our future research that even if the program or service already exists and it's right for the intended audience. So even if you've done all of your background correctly, did you determine the right method to reach them? Are they using it? Why or why not? The if you build it, they will come mentality doesn't work anymore. Uh, so, you know, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of interlocking pieces that, that come together here for a single experience point. There's the, you know, the firefighter accessing the USA Jobs website. There's the uh, human resources management system on the back end. Um, all of this is facilitated by technology. So what is the role of IT services in promoting uh, this, this, this mission of, of equity and accessibility? With IT, I really think it's 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 really a, a close partnership. And and to Nora's point, you know, one of the things that I know our you know CIO and the entire office at USDA uh, knows that is important is really understanding the needs of people as you approach you know kind of that IT solution. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of. Uh, um, legwork when it comes to, you know, how do we design the right team, you know, to support and approach uh, creating a new tool, you know, does the, uh, does the business side have a full understanding of their customers needs, you know, are there gaps as they approach kind of what that solution should be, um, you know, and really kind of looking at uh, a lot of the things that are in the executive order, actually, a lot of things where they talk about, you know, are you approaching, you know, modernization um, in a, in a, using techniques like design thinking in an agile type of a way, because um, those are really a lot of the approaches that we've seen in the past that really bring to bear innovation you know, um, versus, you know, to Nora's example earlier, you know, we saw an app that somebody else made and it sounds really cool and maybe that will solve this issue. Let's try it. You know, whereas if we're really using a, you know, 
human-centered approach, really, you know, taking the customers and the stakeholders consideration into account, looking at, you know, kind of what exists, what they've tried before, you know, if there is a big history there or if there isn't, you know, knowing some of those things up front can really save, especially in the IT space, which usually costs, you know, the most when it comes to investment, you know, in government is really um, making sure we're um, investing in the right things or testing the right things when we talk about, you know, IT and, and, and building uh, solutions in the IT space. So we really are looking very strategically about, um, you know, how we design our digital teams um, and making sure we have the right makeup and the right skill sets and talent up front so that we're not, you know, going through uh, failed uh, solution builds or product development along the way. So equity is is really about fundamentally changing the processes that govern how programs are operated. So moving towards the future so that 50, 60 years down the line, uh, these processes are still embedded in what the USDA does. You know, how, how do you achieve that, that long-term stability in, in, in these efforts? Uh, you, do, you do the ugly work. <laughs> That's the short answer. Uh, like Simcoe was saying, you don't just take a look at the fun apps or the beautiful or flashy things and try to recreate it because you know that that is the fun thing to work on, right? We talked about IT, which I consider to be you know the foundation of our house. Without it, you will have a house, but it will probably fall down at some point. You know, the, your floorboards will be rotting. And so, what we do to ensure that we have long-lasting, equitable, you know, future-proof or at least future-resilient uh, solutions is every time we do work like this, we strip away as much of our inherent bias as we can. Um, and then we turn around and look very critically at our house. And we talk with leadership who looks very critically at their house. I mean, something I love about USDA is that leadership is not afraid to have the hard conversation of what isn't going well. What do we know needs to change? And how do we begin it from the beginning and do it correctly and talk to the people who use it and have them build it with us because the service is by them and for them and they will be the ones to keep using it in the future. And then doing all of those things and being mindful of groups that are excluded. So as we continue this moving forward, we always ask ourselves, you know, who has been knowingly excluded in the past? Who can we include for the future? How can we make sure that every single program and service that we create stays open to groups that we haven't identified yet? Because we know they're out there and we know that this could be beneficial to them. We want to make sure that it reaches them. Um, so yeah, just being honest with yourself, being unafraid to begin at the beginning and scrap it and say, you know, our foundation was bad. Let's build a new one. Let's let's bulldoze the house. Um, but keep all the people inside because they're usually very good at their jobs and we want to hold on to them. Uh, Simka, as someone in a position of leadership at the USDA, how do you sort of promote this this culture of of, of real introspection, of honest introspection in a way that is extremely effective, but still encouraging for employees so they don't feel like they're, you know, being targeted or anything? Well, I think the beauty of this practice is it, it isn't just about external, you know, it's also about internal and, and the changes or the decision points along the way, it impacts both sides. And when we go through these projects, or even design our approach to some of these projects, you know, to, to Nora's point, 
you know, the, the hard, you know, dirty part of it is really having honest conversations internally with our employees about really what's going on. What are those pain points, you know, really speak, uh, you know, open and honestly about where you see not just opportunity for, you know, serving customers better, but also yourselves better, you know, and I think uh, marrying those two sides in all that we do and in all the projects that we approach has really helped not just for good, you know, end products for everybody, but also for like that buy-in, you know, I'm fortunate enough to work with a tremendous amount of, of, you know, colleagues that are all civil servants. We're all here for the same reason. We're all here to, you know, uh, serve the public, whether you're in leadership, whether you're on the field, whether you're, you know, uh, in the mailroom, right? And so at the end of the day, we all do this for the same reason. So there's not as much, you know, a quote unquote buy-in that I have to get for a lot of this work. Um, but I think where, where um, there's a lot of rallying around is usually, you know, to help them deliver better services to the public and how can we design, uh, you know, what we're already doing so well in a better way, easier way for people to use. Um, and I think that that concept, there's not really much to argue there when it comes to that. Um, but I think, you know, the tough part is the, the being honest, you know, to, to Nora's point with ourselves and being open to the fact that if we hear from more folks, we'll learn more. Um, and so I think that's really where um, we're really trying to shift the culture into that kind of open dialogue, that learning environment um, where it's really about learning and it's not about criticism. It's not about you did this, but you didn't do that. You know, all of this is really, let's put everything on the table. Let's learn from one another and then let's, collectively work together, ideate better, you know, approaches. Maybe we tried something five years ago, but maybe if we try it again in this other way, you know, we could get a little bit further. So, so I think that that dialogue is really, I think, a key ingredient to uh, customer experience as a whole. Throughout this conversation that uh, we've had, uh, Nora, as you, as you pointed out, fire really touches everything at the USDA. This is not... Um, something that is solely the purview of, of one agency or one group of people. So the, you know, the changes that we make to promote equity and accessibility, they, it needs to be a collaborative effort among everyone involved, and not just in the federal government, but in this example with state and uh, local governments. So uh, how can federal agencies make sure that there's this exchange of information there's collaboration with all of these different groups in, in trying to make these changes and also collect uh, this important data and, and act on it? That one's tough. I mean, there's no one right answer, right? Um, but just like when I talked about doing your homework on behalf of the firefighters, I mean, you got to start with doing your homework on the program. Many of these have been around for 50 plus years. And even if they're new, you know, they're, they grow to be wildly complex within the first year or so of inception. So, what we always start with is we map out 
every stakeholder, you know, even if they don't commit resources to it, are they affected by it? Do they have a union? Do they talk through these channels? And we get those partners involved. Oftentimes they already have a council that exists between them to talk through it because, you know, they, they want to communicate and collaborate as well. And so what we do is we try to always start from a point of humility and learning you know, we come in and we don't say, yeah, we're in charge, we're going to make sweeping changes. Uh, we come in and say, can we learn from you? Can you teach us about your program and your service and point us in a direction that's useful to you? Um, because that's that's what we want to be. We always want to come in and help augment and connect and make more efficient, like I've said, everything that they already have. And so um, part of that is always being willing to spend a significant chunk on the front end, just learning and absorbing and making a thousand maps um, so that when it comes to the back end, you're already in communication with all of these people. And even if you haven't talked to everyone, you've found their champions, their, their beacons. Um, you know, Simca always talks about finding the light posts along the way to make sure that everyone's involved. And that can be when it comes to a voice of the customer program or a learning session or interviews, as long as you've mapped out all of your light posts, then things will fall into place if you're doing your due diligence. Um, if you just start by talking to one group, performing your program and then walking away, it, it, will, it won't be communicated. It's not possible. There's too many humans involved in the effort. So if you are taking care to involve as many important stakeholders, um, clients, et cetera, then it, it will come together. Yeah, I, I think that that journey perspective is always, you know, we are always trying to look beyond you know, the one event that's happening, you know, we want to look at what's happening before that event, you know, during the event, after the event, and then after that, you know, and I think that's the beauty of also looking at things from a journey and a goals perspective, you know, what is this person trying to achieve, whether that's an employee, or whether that's, you know, um, a, a forester uh, or a landowner, you know, what are they trying to achieve and what is USDA's role in that? Do we play a role from end to end? Do we play a heavier role in the middle and a little bit at the end, you know, and let's look at kind of what's happening in between too, even if it's not us. If it happens to be a state uh, government interaction or it happens to be other kind of entities involved, we want to hear from them. We want to understand those pieces because like Nora said in the beginning, customer experience is a collection of, you know, of interactions uh, along the way, right? And if we don't understand that, and we only understand our one sliver and that's it, that's as far as we can go, you know? And so really, um, it, it, sometimes it takes time, but sometimes we'll work in really kind of creative ways to learn and iterate in a more, in a more, much more quicker way, you know, uh, because we also don't want to take a whole year of learning, right. And not being able to kind of make some incremental changes along the way. We want to try to design our projects or design our approach in such a way that we can learn we can try, we can learn, we can try, we can learn, we can try. And, and we want to really kind of have a good rhythm there where we can um, always try to be uh, gaining more opportunities, especially for those underserved, especially for those seeking more equitable, you know, services with USDA. I think it's 100% our job, you know, to make sure that these uh, offerings are available 
um, to everybody that, you know, uh, needs them. Mm. That's that that agile approach uh, that you mentioned. Nora Simka, thank you so much for joining me. My guests uh, today were Nora Johnson, who is the former project lead of the Wildland Firefighter Equity Project at the U.S. Forest Service. She is from Booz Allen Hamilton. And Simka Suveki-Bogan, the Chief Customer Experience Officer at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Simka, Nora, any final thoughts? No, I think it's such a great uh, pleasure to be able to speak about our work, you know, really be able to speak about what the United States Department of Agriculture is doing in this space, uh, how important customer experience is, not just to my own individual office, but really uh, as a department and how we're collectively, you know, uh, really uh, looking at opportunities to make uh, our services better for the public. Yeah, I know I stress the importance of listening and learning and being humble throughout all of this. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to share and grateful that many people continue to so that I can listen and learn from them as well. And that's a wrap on The Buzz with ACT-IAC. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ACT-IAC. More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.